0: Romans chapter 11, Romans 11. All right, well, if you are into mountain climbing, you know that the Himalayan mountains, that, boy, man, if you could do that, they range from four miles to five and a half miles above sea level, okay? And ever since uh, people got the idea that, you know, that'd be really cool if we climbed to the top of the mountains, the Himalayans, and especially Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, has been kind of on the agenda. In fact, the first attempt was in 1920, all the way through 1953, you had 10 different expeditions trying to get to the top of Mount Everest, and they all ended in failure. and Sometimes they ended with a loss of life. And finally, the ninth British expedition, a guy by the name of Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa guide, Tenzing Norgay, on May 29th, 1953, they did what no other person had ever been able to do before. They ascended up the south side. They eventually made it all the way to the top, the top of the world top of Mount Everest, 29,028 feet above sea level. They took some pictures. Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary took some pictures of his guide, Norgay waving the flag of the United Nations, India, Nepal, Britain. They were only up there for about 15 minutes because they were running low on oxygen. And I mean, there's, just because you made it at to the top doesn't mean you're going to make it back. And so now they made that trek back down. And I tell you, Can you imagine what it would be like to stand on the top of the world? What do the pictures reveal? What did you actually see? When you come to the book of Romans, when you hit Romans 11, it's as if we've been on an ascent, starting in chapter 1, of all this theology about who God is and the power of the gospel and the transformation that he brings. And we're at chapter 11, we're almost at the summit, and today we're going to hit it. And what is God trying to accomplish in our lives as we get to know and to grow into the wonders of god's way what is he trying to bring about well romans chapter 11 actually reveals just that picking up from where we left off last week as we've been making our way through the book of romans chapter 11 we ask the question is god faithful to keep his promises is god faithful he's a promise maker but is he a promise keeper specifically does god keep his promises that he made to israel Promises that he made to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land, a nation, and blessing. You are through you, through your lineage, will be a blessing to all the people. Is God really going to be faithful to his promises? Well, a lot of that depends on is he going to be faithful to the promises he's made to Israel. And when you look at the answer that we started to see in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Remember chapter 11, verse 1, we saw that God in this present time was faithful to Paul. Paul's a Jewish of Jewish descent. In fact, he says, I'm even from the tribe of Benjamin. But I believe. That shows that God is faithful to a guy like Paul. He's also demonstrated his faithfulness to his people all through time. And actually, you see that in his past faithfulness, chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through 10, where you see that God has always within the large body of national Israel had a spiritual Israel that truly believed God just like Abraham did. And he recounted events in their history that shows that God is faithful and he always has a faithful remnant within a larger body of people. And that brings us then to chapter 11, verse 11 and following, where you see God's current faithfulness to move Israel to trust in Christ through the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, it's really interesting. Last week, I had multiple people tell me, like, I never knew that. I studied the book of Romans 4. I've read this. I never, I don't know what happened, but I never saw what is actually written in verse 11, what God is doing with the salvation of the Gentiles and the response it's supposed to have in the Jewish mind. Look what he says in verse 11. I say, say then, they did not stumble, speaking of the Jewish people, so as to fall permanently, did they? may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. By their transgression, their rejection of Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, God has brought salvation to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Why? Look at verse 11, to make them jealous. They see non- Jewish people, Gentiles, trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. They're receiving all the benefits of the new covenant. They got purpose, peace, identity, hope. They are worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God. That is to to evoke jealousy among the people of Israel, where they say, I want what they have because they have the Messiah. And so he keeps going on, verse 12. Now, if their transgression, their avoidance, their rejection of Christ, is the riches for the world and that'd be a good description of what what God is accomplishing in this present time, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? How much greater will it be when Israel actually does believe in Jesus as their Messiah? And Paul says, verse 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save son of some of them. I want to move them to jealousy. So in all his gospel proclamation, and he saw a lot of Gentiles coming to Christ. In fact, that is true today. Part of that is to evoke jealousy among the people of Israel. And so he says, verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If through Israel's rejection of their Messiah, God has brought reconciliation of the world, meaning people from the world to be reconciled with God, what will it be like when the Jewish people actually do trust Jesus the Messiah? Do You see what he said? It will be like life from the dead. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 37, he gave this prophecy of these dry bones, literally coming to life having flesh put on that they're alive, it was all to be a picture. This is what it's going to look like when Israel finally does believe. It'll be like life from the dead. And he says, beginning in verse 16, he's going to give two illustrations to give you a picture of what is actually taking place. Now, Paul is a master speaker and he understands the power of an illustration. So he's going to give two of them. He's going to give a real brief one And then he's going to spend a lot of time on a second. But the primary point of what he's going to illustrate is this. What the Gentile Christians now enjoy was once reserved for the Jewish people. And there will be a time where the Jews will once again be in an honored place. And that's going to take place in the future. The first illustration you find there in verse 16. It's just in the first half of the verse. He says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Now, let me give you a little bit of Jewish history here. You remember when God gave the law he said I want you to be a God-centered people. I am setting you apart. I want the world to see what it really looks like to know me and to live for me and with me. And so one of the things that we're going to do is you need to recognize that everything you have is from me and I want you to give a first portion of of what you have to me so remember like the first fruits at harvest time when they actually got the first part of grain they actually gave that to the priest as an offering to god and it was an expression that god everything we have we've received from you and it is set apart to you in fact all that is to follow is set apart to you and we get it but it was not only for grain but in in numbers chapter 17 15 verses 17 through 21 he actually goes to even identify that when you're making bread you should take a little part of it a part of it just like he's talking about there a piece of the dough out of that lump and you give it to the priests to show and to show yourself and to recognize that all that you have is from god and by the way that is really good perspective for all of us everything you've got it's from the lord And part of a God-centered mentality is that you actually give him a portion, even the first portion, the best portion, to recognize I've got everything I've got is from you. It is a God-centered life. And when they gave a part of the dough set apart, it meant all of that, in essence, was set apart. We're going to be using it for God's purposes in our life. Now what he's talking about here is the first piece of the dough was Abraham. Okay, and if you've been tracking with us as we go in through Romans chapter 11, he's talking about Israel as a national entity and Gentiles, the first piece of dough was Abraham himself and the promises that God made to him and Isaac and Jacob. And if they have been set apart, he says the whole lump, just like they had always practiced, is also set apart. But then he's going to give them the second illustration. So you got the the part of the dough, the little lump from the whole part of the dough. But the second illustration is is a lesson in horticulture. It's a lesson in grafting. It's a lesson about olive trees. And so beginning in verse 16, he says, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. So he says, if the root of a tree, okay, speaking figuratively, is holy, that means the whole tree is holy. If the roots are, the whole tree is. And so he's going to give this lesson here. And he's going to compare branches, and and he's going to compare an olive tree, To Israel and Gentiles. So just listen to what he has to say. Look at verse 17. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, are you seeing this in verse 17? Were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Now, I take it that a lot of you are probably not into farming, probably never grafted anything, maybe not be very familiar with olive trees. Let me give you a little background on what's going on here. Okay, the number one crop in Israel at that time was what? Olives. Olive trees was the most prevalent plant and what they grew in all of Israel. The olive tree itself was used to represent Israel. Now, what they did they had cultivated trees, and, and they, would, they were the ones that actually produced the olives, but there were also wild olive trees. Now, the wild olive trees, they, they really didn't produce any fruit that you could eat. Okay? They had like these little mubs. You couldn't really get the oil out of them. And this was the problem. The problem was their cultivated trees that they had in their gardens and all their farms, they didn't do so well with drought and wind. On the other hand, as it would be, the wild olive trees No problem. Going without rain for three years, we can make it. Huge windstorms, never a problem. So what these ancient farmers figured out is that you could take branches off of these cultivated olive trees and you could graft them into these really tough, uh, wild olive trees in their trunks. And so you make this little slit and you put a bud in there and eventually saps get starting transfer. And what would happen is you'd have this hybrid tree that could endure all sorts of harsh circumstances and produce all these wonderful olives. And so that imagery would be very familiar. And what he's saying is like, Israel is like this tree and it is, it's got the rich roots of promise and of covenant and of blessing and of salvation. And so he's saying, He's like, it's like the Gentiles are like a branch off of a wild tree that was actually put into a cultivated tree. Now, I'm telling that, and most of you didn't like, oh, hey, wait, time out, that's wrong. But everybody back when they would receive this letter that was familiar with how olives grew, you're like, no, you don't do that. You never did that because the, it was the root system. It was actually the trunk of the wild tree that gave it such strength You never took a wild branch that could bear no fruit and somehow actually splice it in to a cultivated tree. You would never do that. And Paul is doing this to show you just how radical God's grace is. So we may not be familiar with it, but now that you actually understand a little bit of the background, you can see like, wow, that's tremendously different. And what he's telling the Gentile people is, listen, you never get to a place where you're arrogant, toward the jewish people to a place where you like think you're superior you never come to a place of anti-semitism where you're like man the jews are second class absolutely not he says branches were broken off did you see that they were broken off in verse 17 and they would literally do that if a branch stopped becoming productive they would actually cut it off and they could graft in other branches paul is saying that's what happened to you In fact, it's so radical, you're a non-fruit-bearing, wild branch. You were brought into God's cultivated tree of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't break off all the branches, verse 17, just some of them. And he says, verse 19, You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Branches of Israel, which should have been bearing fruit, they were broken off, and that's right, so that you, the Gentile, would actually be grafted in to God and his covenant family to receive the blessings and the promises of Abraham to experience the new covenant and forgiveness of sins in real life with God and he says verse 20 quite right they were broken off for their unbelief and this is key verse 20 why were they broken off because basically as a nation they didn't believe but you stand by your key word faith do not be conceited but fear you came to a place where you believe and that is the issue if you believe you receive the promises and now he's not talking about individuals he's talking about the nation israel as a whole and gentiles that whole mass of non-jewish people as a whole they started believing they were grafted in for he says this isn't supposed to lead to conceit pride in our life it's to lead to a holy reverence wow Our God is awesome and he says verse 21 for if God did not spare the natural branches he will not spare you either he's remember he's speaking to Gentiles as a whole this is not about individuals losing their salvation because when God gives eternal life could you lose eternal life if it's never-ending no but what he's saying is Gentiles as a whole if you come to a place of unbelief that branch those branches they're going to be cut off as well god is able to do that and he says verse 22 behold then the kindness and severity of god to those who fell severity but to you god's kindness if you continue in his kindness otherwise you will also you will be cut off and that is really important in verse 22 you know how you stay believing You keep focusing on god's kindness you continue in it and he says in verse 23 and they also if they do not continue in their unbelief they will be grafted in for god is able to graft them in again if the jewish people do not continue in unbelief but come to a place that they can believe god's able and will bring them in and he's all setting you up for what's going to take place in the future he says verse 24 for if you were cut off from by from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature. This isn't how it's usually done. Contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches, speaking of the Jewish people, be grafted in to their own olive tree? How much more will it be for them? God is able to do that. So you need to know that at this present time, There is, it's like the period of the Gentiles, where the fullness of the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are bringing brought into the kingdom. I mean, look at it today. There are very few Jewish people that are putting their trust and faith in Jesus the Messiah. On the other hand, you've got people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people all around the world that have no Jewish heritage, have really no alignment with the people of Israel whatsoever, They hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died for their sins. He rose again from the grave. That you can receive forgiveness in life if you believe in him. And we have people, millions of people all around the world that are believing in Christ and receiving these blessings. And that is to show not only is God bringing in a massive number of Gentiles, and it's only going to be for a period of time, but it is also to evoke jealousy among the Jewish people to say, hey, wait a second here. We're missing out on the blessings that were intended for us. But you need to understand something. There will be a time where God's future faithfulness is to bring salvation to Israel. Look at verse 25. He's saying, I want to be crystal clear with you folks. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. A mystery is not something that's puzzling or difficult to grasp. It is something that was previously hidden that is now being revealed so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Paul saying, I want you to understand what is taking place in this time, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, he says, there is like a partial hardening to the hearts of the people of Israel. But what that is allowing is for all these Gentiles, people like you and me, we, don't, we're not, we have no Jewish blood, to come to a place of salvation and belief. And he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, there is going to come an end where this will stop. And with that we can see as we kind of tie into different passages like first Thessalonians four thirteen that there is going to be an event where God is literally going to capture, rapture his people, where they'll be together with him, and it's be the time where the fullness of the Gentiles ends. And it's in, at that point that God's program with Israel is going like to be re-energized. It's going to be like life from the dead. And he says, it's going to happen, what, there's a hardening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then look at verse 26. So that all Israel will be saved just as it is written. He's saying there's going to a place, when, time when Israel believes. Now he says all Israel, it doesn't mean every single Israelite but a significant number enough that it could be a nationally understood event. So for instance, let me give you an example of like the use of all. Remember a guy by the name of Achan when Joshua moved into the promised land? They, God said specifically, this is what I want you to do, and I don't want you to take any of their stuff, their spoils. I'm putting it under a ban. Well, Achan goes, man... Look at all this cool stuff, all this gold, this mantle for the fireplace. Wow, awesome. I'm taking a little bit of this stuff. No one will ever know. And he hid it in his tent. But you need to know something. God always knows what you're doing, what you're thinking. He knows. Even if you think, like, I've got, no one knows or stands this. It's so late at night or no one really knew that I did that. God knows. And, of course, in that event, Achan is found out. Remember that? And it's said in Joshua chapter seven, verse 25, that all of Israel, based on God's command, stoned and killed Achan. Did it mean that every single Israelite threw a stone at Achan? Well, no, but we understood that there were enough of them that it was in a national event. And it says that all of Israel, and that's what you need to understand here. So that all of Israel, a significant national event is going to place. All of Israel will be saved And this is prophesied. And he's going to give a quote from Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21 and, and Psalm 14, 7, where this is what has been promised. In the future, this is what's going to take place. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. God is going to do this. And here again in verse 27, you have the new covenant. This is so very huge. Jeremiah 31 Verses 31 through 34. You, you want to remember that because this is the new covenant promise where God says literally, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. You're going to know me personally. In fact, my spirit will reside in you and I will forgive your sins. And notice what he says, because this is my covenant. I am a promise keeper. I promised this to Israel. I'm going to make it happen. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I'm going to do it. I promised it i will fulfill it and notice what he says verse 28 from the standpoint of the gospel the jewish people they're enemies for your sake they they're rejecting it's like they're they're enemies of god they don't want him they're choosing not to follow him and he says that brings great blessing to the gentile people but from the standpoint of god's choice you see that verse 28 they are beloved for the sake of the fathers the sake of the root abraham isaac jacob god says i love them and i'm going to fulfill my promises to them verse 29 why for the gifts and the calling of god are irrevocable when god makes a promise he will fulfill it even if you don't understand it that is the nature of our god and that is how he works and just to kind of summarize what he's been talking about he says verse 30 for just as you once were disobedient to god but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these, speaking of the Jewish people, also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all when he says shut up doesn't mean to silence it is a kind of a compound word that means to kind of collect like in a net it was actually used by in luke chapter 5 when they catch this large quantity of fish in a net it's like they're all captured and brought in together and do you see what he says in verse 32 all have been enclosed or shut up in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all the reason god brings us into the net where he surrounds us and we are it's because of our disobedience is so that we have hope in only one who can save us, and that is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, let me just kind of summarize a little bit what's going on here. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, There was a gal by the name of Violet Bailey, and she had her fiancé, Samuel Booth. In 1941, our two little lovebirds, they are engaged, and they were out for a walk into the field on some family property. Well, as it would be, they got into a little tiff. Some words were exchanged. Uh, next thing you know, something very deep and penetrating and insulting was said. And Violet takes off her beautiful engagement ring with the diamond on it. And she does, as they say here in Texas, she chunked it. She throws it out in the field. How's that? Now, let me just tell you, that is a bad idea. Please do not do that, okay? And so, okay, now you can tell things are going to be tense. Well... They were able to kiss and make up. They had learned how to work through their conflict that got started in their engagement days. Um, They searched all over that field for that ring and search and search, but they could never find it. Well, two months later, they got married. They eventually had a son. That son had a son. Samuel, he died in 1993. And 15 years after that, that ring which had become part of their family lore a story that they passed on about like oh you know grandma and grandpa they were after each other you know and she got really mad and she threw the ring you know you guys every family has little weird stories like that right and they had one of those well my grandson was like well this ring's got to be out there if you really threw it out there the ring's got to be out there well 15 years after samu passed away their grandson sharp kid had this idea What if we get one of those metal detectors? You know, maybe one of you have one, and you're the guy out on the beach, you know, or in the park, and what if we get one of those, and I'll just start walking through the field and see if I can find it. So he's crisscrossing the field, and lo and behold, he finds that diamond ring, that engagement ring that his grandmother, in a fit of rage, threw out in the field. So what he did is he brought it back, and he placed it 67 years later back onto the finger of his grandmother how what can you imagine how cool that would be what she was thinking wow well in essence that's what god is doing with israel israel and the hardness of their heart i rejected god i don't want him i'll do things my own way and you know what's happened it's like that ring is out there but you need to know something god is going to bring israel back And there is going to be a widespread belief. And as you read through the book of Revelation, you see just that. You got 144,000 even named by tribe. By the time in chapter seven in Revelation, by the time you get to chapter 20, you have a millennial kingdom and all God's promises of a land, a nation, and an immense blessing all are fulfilled. Why? Because God is a promise keeper. And if we know that God keeps his promises to Israel, you know what that means for us? God keeps his promises with you and me. He will never leave us. Never forsake us. No matter what we've done, he loves us. He gives us his presence. His word is in our heart and our eternity is secure. We've got identity, purpose. We have peace because we have have a God who keeps his promises. And how are we to respond? Because right now we have hit the summit. We are at the top. We're at the Mount Everest of theology. We're at the culmination of Romans chapter 11. How are we to respond to this kind of truth and to this kind of God? Well, the wonders of God's way are to lead to the worship in his people. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The riches of his mercy, his wisdom, his knowledge. They're they're beyond comprehension. How unsearchable, verse 33, are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We, We simply couldn't understand them. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who's telling God how it's going to be? No. Or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Uh Uh-uh. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You need to know all things are from him, through him, to him. Our lives are meant to worship God, even at times when we don't understand. Because you see in verse 36 where he says, all things, all things are to lead to our worship. I can tell you this. There are going to be events and situations in your life you're not going to understand. Some of you are in them. I've had numerous times where I this makes really no sense. If I was God, I would definitely not do it this way. You know what I'm talking about? His ways are inscrutable. They're unsearchable. They're unfathomable. There's, God is working things out in ways that you would never imagine. You know, your, your loss of employment or promotion, do you know what? That is all for him. The blessings in your family or even... That precious loved one that is now no longer on this earth God has working these all things together for his good for his glory and it is meant to bring about worship when you look at the theology of Romans 1 through 11 it is to bring about worship it is if we are standing on the Mount Everest of theology And we see just how powerful and mighty and awesome God is. And it is meant to bring about worship in our lives. And you can ask questions and you can like, God, why is this going on? But at the end of the day, when you don't have your answers, you rest back in the finished work of God and you trust in his character and you allow your heart to worship him whose ways at times are mysterious. That has always been the history. Remember Mary and Joseph? They're up in Nazareth. Mary is just about ready to give birth. They know the uniqueness of this child due to the uniquenesses of this pregnancy, and yet they got to make a 90 mile trek from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem because some emperor makes a decree that we're going to take a census and you got to go back to your hometown. And she actually gives birth to a baby, a baby named Jesus, and a stable. And there are a lot of that, like, why? And yet it was a fulfillment of prophecies. And that child. Is the Messiah and as time progressed more and more they saw remember Joseph in Genesis I mean he has these amazing dreams but he also has brothers that hate him tremendously and at at one point they feel like they're gonna just kill him but then they decide to no, let's not kill him let's sell him as a slave let's make some at least some money off him and they do and Joseph he's he's a slave and things start to go well I mean he's still a slave but in his particular house where he's serving here comes the top guy it has so happened that Potiphar, the guy he serves, wife, tries to make the moves on him. He's like, no way, man. I, my life is open before God. He tears out of there. She grabs his coat. He ends up in prison. And I have read a lot of times Joseph's like made no sense to him. Why did this have to happen? That's because his ways are unfathomable. Joseph didn't know at the time that he would eventually be the number two man in the Egyptian empire and that he would be the one who would literally save his brothers and his father, the very brothers that sold him into slavery, Joseph would be the guy who would rescue them because he had food in the midst of the famine. Or Moses, you know, he spent 40 years kind of living in the palace in Egypt, 40 years after he killed an Egyptian, living in the desert, herding sheep. Talk about a job that makes no sense. You got a job that's just like, ah, ah. How would you like to feed sheep in the desert? Does anybody want to sign up for that? That sounds like a bad idea, but that's what he was doing. But do you know what about age 80, that's when God really began a very serious work. He prepared him for the event to lead his people through that desert and to release them from slavery. His ways are unfathomable. You look at Esther. She's forced into the king's harem, but she has ro- actually becomes queen for such a time as this to save her people from annihilation. Or you look at Ruth, a Moabite widow, and she follows Naomi back to Israel. She's never even been there. She lives in total poverty, but eventually... Through events that only God could orchestrate, she marries a man named Boaz and she becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's great king, David. His ways are unfathomable. You won't always figure it out, but you can always worship. And that's what Romans 1 through 11 does. It shows us that God is sovereign, he is faithful, he is loving, he is just, he is the God of mercy and salvation, and his ways are unfathomable. And that is meant to bring us to worship. Friends, when you read the scriptures, when you listen to a sermon, when you study the Bible, it has an intent. It is always meant to bring you to a place of worship. It's not just so that you're smarter, you have a better understanding, clearer uh, view of God's ethics. All those things happen. Great. It is meant to bring about Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Worship all of me for all of you guy by the name of michael quick and he writes of his experiences living in england one day whether it was his ninth or tenth birthday wasn't clear his um his parents gave him this birthday present And it was like, you know how you like, every once in a while try to do something like your kids that will really throw them off? Well, they blindfolded him on his birthday. And they take him on his little trip. And they're driving in the car. And eventually they're walking a little bit. And then next thing you know, he's blindfolded. He's trying to see out. He's like climbing all of these stairs. And he's climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. Here's a couple people going, "Ah, kidnapped the kid, huh? You know, and like, he's like, you know, he's trying to figure this out. And eventually they stop climbing. They take off his blindfold, and he is standing at the top of the Cabot Tower in Bristol, England. And he says, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, the city, it lay underneath there, and he could see it just kind of dazzling. And he could see the river as it was dancing. He saw the meadows, and even in the distance, he could see the sea glistening. And he says, for the first time in my life, I just felt like I was totally alive because of what I was seeing and friends that is what theology is meant to do in our lives romans 11 is like the culminating point and when we see god in his grandeur and his glory and his mercy and his sovereignty it is to evoke worship and say wow i'm alive and god you are awesome you see seeing the wonders of god's way it's to develop worship in his people let's pray lord we praise you and thank you for an awesome passage of scripture You take us to the very summit and we see your ways. Powerful, mighty, saving, majestic, glorious. And Father, if there is someone who has never trusted in your son, would they pray with me right now and say, God, I turn from sin and self. I trust in Jesus and I worship you. God, would you lead my life? And for all of us, Lord, may our lives be an expression of worship as we read and study the scriptures. Help us to fall more deeper in love with you. May our lives be an expression of worship. May our giving be seen as devotion to you. For we love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.